Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well, Margaret, what a wild set of weeks uh, before October. The exchanges are up and running, but who knows what's going to go bump in the night. Uh, but folks are starting to shop online for health insurance across the country. That's right. And October 1 was the date that the exchanges opened. And you know, we're hearing that uh, the expert in the street take is that business won't really pick up significantly in these first few weeks, maybe not even until November. But the analysts are still predicting that at least 7 million Americans will find insurance coverage on the exchanges during this first open enrollment period, which runs from now until the end of March. So I think some good news. Also, premiums are coming in generally below expectations around the country. You're absolutely right, Margaret. We know that rates are going to vary from state to state, and the federal exchange is going to cover folks in some 36 states, either partially or fully. But the last check with the Department of Health and Human Services, the average monthly insurance premium is coming down around $320 per month for the mid-level silver plan. And, Mark, that's the figure before you factor in the tax subsidies for folks who buy on the exchanges. So there'll be more savings to add to those savings when the calculations are done. I think it's really important to remind folks who are entering these online insurance marketplaces to seek assistance from a trusted navigator. Some of these plans may seem reasonable until you factor in things like high deductibles and higher co-pays for services. Make sure you investigate the fine print to make sure it fits your family's budget and needs. So, Mark, looking across the country, uh, still some surprises to notes in states like Texas, where there's been a pretty vociferous uh, opposition to the health care law. The premium rates on their exchange are coming in lower than the national average, which is interesting. And some of the proactive states like Connecticut, well, they're showing premium rates that are among the highest in the nation. So politics aside, there are, of course, local and regional factors that impact rates. But the Congressional Budget Office has determined that of the 7 million individuals and small businesses who will purchase insurance on the exchanges by next year. Over 6 million will qualify for subsidy under the Affordable Care Act. That's going to amount to significant savings for folks struggling to gain coverage. And, of course, we expect a significant number of people will be covered by Medicaid in the states where Medicaid expansion is taking place. So with all of these newly insured Americans comes the question that many have been asking, who will care for all of these additional patients? And that's a question that our guest today has been mulling over for some time. Dr. Artis D. Hoven is the president of the American Medical Association. Since taking that position in June, she's been urging her membership to embrace the health care law and the reforms and the innovations that are coming about as a result of this really huge shift in how we manage our health care system. She'll be talking about the policies and practices they're advocating now at the AMA to improve the work environment for medical professionals, as well as protecting the rights of patients. And we will hear from Lori Robertson, the managing editor of factcheck.org. She's always on a mission to correct falsehoods about health policy that are spoken in the public domain. But no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by Googling CHC Radio, or if you have comments, please email us at chcradio.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter because we'd love to hear from you. Now we'll get to our interview with Dr. Hoven in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's headline news. I'm Ariano Hare with these healthcare headlines. Healthcare and politics, inextricable bedfellows and contentious ones at that, with threats of government shutdowns over the healthcare law and the looming debt ceiling creating another potential for fiscal disaster. The health law marches on. 
insurance exchanges went live across the country October 1st, and residents in all 50 states are now looking into how they can access health insurance policies in these new online insurance marketplaces and how much of a tax subsidy they will qualify for as well. There are fits and starts in the various exchanges around the country. The insurance exchange in the District of Columbia was experiencing some technological difficulties. In fact, it's expected to be one of the main problems nationwide. The Affordable Care Act is supported by a matrix of computer technology in Washington that provides the state exchanges with a flood of information about each insurance applicant, including his or her income. This data hub also is supposed to allow states to check with the Department of Homeland Security to ensure that applicants are citizens or legal residents. And because all systems across the country were at varying degrees of readiness October 1st, the federal government has waived the income verification requirement for a year for those applying for health insurance subsidies. Meanwhile, the need to rein in health care costs is impacting how some major corporations view their health care policies. UPS is changing their policies to discontinue spousal coverage if the employee's spouse has access to coverage in their own work plans. They will not, as some pundits have suggested, be eliminating policies for all employee spouses. Walgreens, which employs thousands of Americans, is resorting to a private insurance exchange, not the government-run one. Although it's less a move to control employee health care costs, more to stimulate competition among those insurers buying for the insurance business Walgreens offered. Meanwhile, the feds have given approval to the request by the state of Arkansas to take a different approach to Medicaid expansion. The state had requested a plan that would allow them to extend Medicaid expansion by giving some 200,000 residents vouchers to purchase insurance on the health exchanges. Other states are looking to the Arkansas Compromise for a possible option in their own states. And menopause and insomnia. Unfortunately, the two go hand in hand for a large number of middle-aged women. Hormone therapy is the only FDA-approved treatment for reducing symptoms, but a recent study published in the publication Menopause may have found a new solution for some, yoga. A study of menopausal women who took a 12-week yoga course showed their insomnia improved. The yoga had no impact, however, on hot flashes. Well, if you can't beat them, just go do hot yoga and have at it. I'm Ariano O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. We're speaking today with Dr. Artis D. Hoven, the 168th president of the American Medical Association and the third woman to hold that position in the nation's oldest and largest physician organization. Dr. Hoven serves as the AMA representative on the board of directors of the National Quality Forum, which seeks to improve healthcare delivery in this country. Dr. Hoven is an internist and infectious disease specialist focusing on HIV AIDS in Kentucky, where she also served as president of the Kentucky Medical Association. She's a member of the American College of Physicians and Infectious Disease Society of America. Dr. Hoven, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. Thank you. You know, we're in a new phase of the implementation of the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act with the opening this month of the online insurance exchanges. And your organization, uh, the American Medical Association, has over 200,000 members, but not all of them support the health care law. But since taking office in June, you've said that it's time for the medical profession to embrace the Affordable Care Act and start to exploit the law's potential for improving public health and the health care profession including informing patients about the online exchanges so that they might access health coverage. So can you give our listeners an assessment of where your membership stands with Obamacare? Well, as you are aware, the AMA's position 
at the time of activity around the Affordable Care Act actually had to do with our position on the uninsured, making sure that uninsured Americans in this country would have access to high-quality health care in a meaningful way. And that has been the driver for much of our work in the Affordable Care Act as well. We knew at the front end that the Affordable Care Act was not a perfect piece of legislation, but in fact it had some very important elements that we thought uh, very important to support. Having said that, uh, the physician community has actually been leading in much of the change in some ways out there. If you think about what is happening now in work around model, uh, models of care, delivery of care, looking at ways to enhance care coordination. So the physician community has taken up a significant lead here in helping to enact many of these changes. Well, Dr. Hoven, the mission statement of the American Medical Association, as you know so well, is to promote the art and the science of medicine for the betterment of the public health. And I think we'd all probably agree that the art and science of medicine are undergoing some significant changes in the way we're delivering it to the public, and not just due to the Affordable Care Act, of course, but so many factors, these unbelievable advances in science and technology that we are witnessing and changes in the way consumers and patients expect to get their care, aging population, all sorts of things. So what do you think the most dramatic changes for the medical profession are going to be, and and particularly for physicians on the front lines? Well, what we see is that we know we have to innovate and change the way we deliver care in this country. It's not just about delivering care. It's also about the cost of care, the quality of care, and the health of our patients. And so to do that, we see one of the most important pieces of this is looking at how health care is being delivered. And when I talk about delivery change, I'm talking about various models of care. For example, we've seen work around something called accountable care organizations, which are people and practices integrating uh, to provide care and, and control costs. We talk about the, the primary medical home model, another way in which particularly folks with chronic diseases are well managed to their betterment and to improving the quality and cutting down on the cost. So there are a lot of different models in play out there. Many of them are being tested right now. This is where the big change is going to take place, and the physician community is ready to embrace this. So will it happen overnight? No. Will it require resources and education? Yes. Will it require changes in how our patients access care? And the answer is yes. Uh, So those changes out there are underway, and we will direct our attention to them and be appropriate in our responses to them. Uh, Dr. Hoven, let's uh, take a look at the work the AMA uh, does in advocating for growth in the medical profession. And as we move forward with the implementation of the health care law, you know, one of the byproducts, I think, in Massachusetts was the large demand for primary care providers. And we're going to see millions of more Americans entering the healthcare arena where there's predicted to be shortages uh, in the tens of thousands. And there have been mixed reviews in the past over policies governing the number of medical school positions there are available in this country. But uh, the tide seems to be turning. And I know the AMA's Liaison Committee on Medical Education has advocated strongly for an increase in medical schools. And there are a number of new medical schools opening up uh, across the country. And they're very much focused in on training primary care clinicians. What vision does the AMA have for responding to the growing healthcare needs and making the ground more fertile for enticing medical 
students to choose the path of primary care? Well, we've got to address that as a nation, but specifically the AMA's work has been directed in in many ways around one of our new strategic directions, as you alluded to, which is uh, medical education reform. And we know that in this country we have more medical students, we have more medical schools, we have more patients to be seen, and yet we have an obstruction, if you will, in the whole concept of graduate medical education, which is that training piece which occurs between graduating from medical school and then going out into practice. And so the AMA has been very specific in looking at uh, GME funding, how that's going to take place, but is also now looking as part of its strategic focus on ways of changing uh, educational innovation so it's it's something that's going to take multiple levels of activity. It's going to take work at the graduate medical education level. It's going to take work at our medical school level. And it's going to involve funding as well. So it's a complex issue. Uh, team-based care is going to be taught in medical schools. It's being taught now. Team-based care being physician-led care, but at the same time allowing all healthcare professionals to function at their highest level of training and expertise. And it's that team care that's going to afford us the ability to manage uh, the care that we want to provide in this country in a more efficient and timely manner. Well, Dr. Hovind, uh, you talked about team care. Are there other changes in terms of distribution or investment of resources or strategies to get things right in this country that you expect to see or to at least be considered? I think it's probably all of the above. What we're looking at now is we look at these various innovation models, and there have been 11 schools that we have awarded grant money to to look at this so that we have competency-based training as opposed to just calendar training, that we are looking at pathways that are more efficient in the use of educational time and exposure to the types of education that young men and women need, and most importantly, being able to develop amongst these young men and women their excitement and enthusiasm about doing primary care, for example. We're speaking today with Dr. Artis D. Hoven, the 168th president of the American Medical Association. Dr. Hoven is an internist specializing in infectious disease. Dr. Hoven, the AMA has been very active in promoting a better system for Medicare reimbursement and the so-called SGR formula, which stands for sustained growth rate. Can you tell us the efforts that are underway and what you think would be the ideal solution for fixing the broken Medicare reimbursement system? Uh, Over the last uh, 10 years, we've had 15 patches to the SGR. Now, what we mean by that is threatened cuts based on a formula that doesn't work anymore. It's based on the GDP, not on providing care. And it's threatened many practices. And it's very disconcerting for our seniors out there every year to see Congress debate this and then at the last minute, at the 11th hour, patch it, kick the can down the road, and wait till one more year appears. This year, things are different. This year, the AMA, along with our physician colleagues in the state and specialty societies throughout the United States, collaborated together and came up with a plan. And it's not only to repeal the SGR, which is the first step, But it is then the second part of this, which is to provide five years of stable reimbursement of physician practices throughout the country so that they could then begin to work on the infrastructure to moving towards innovative models of healthcare delivery, as we were talking about earlier. 
It's these models of delivery of care which are going to be best for patients, improve health outcomes in this country, and at the end of the day, going to save on the cost of health care. We have been very pleased with the positive uptake, bipartisan, both sides of the aisle, looking at this and saying, yes, this is something we should do, we must do. And I am much more optimistic than I have ever been in years past about our ability to see this change. Well, Dr. Hovind, it sounds to me like change is something that you get up and embrace every day in your your role as the president of uh, the organization. But there is a lot of change for people to embrace. I'm sure uh, with 200,000 members and in states all across the country, you've got to meet these. These things have to be met with somewhat equal parts of enthusiasm and resistance. And I wonder from where you sit, how uh, you work with the different regions and the states and the stakeholders. What's your structure to try and build a consensus? And I guess the second part of that would be, do you see a generational shift kicking in? Are we at another point where a new generation is sort of rising up within medicine uh, that sees sees things differently and how the world of healthcare works? Well, the AMA actually represents about 185 states and specialty organizations, so all 50 states, and then the balance being the rest of the specialty and subspecialty societies in the United States, are represented uh, by delegates to the House of Delegates at the AMA, which is the policy-setting body of the organization. The AMA then takes that policy and advocates on behalf of physicians and patients in this country, so we have very good representation and very good working relationships throughout the country. Young men and women coming into this arena now actually come with great passion and enthusiasm, and I am very optimistic. They will continue to be our leaders. They bring a view of health care which reflects change and unsupportive of change, and they are going to be those taking care of us in the future, not only politically, but in policy setting and at the bedside. And I'm very optimistic about their enthusiasm and their knowledge. And I will tell you, they are the brightest and the best we have ever seen. You know, I wanted to get back to reimbursements. And you talked on uh, Medicare and the need to probably stabilize those rates. We know the private physician community also does a tremendous uh, job in this area. And as part of the Affordable Care Act, um, the rates were increased. Uh, They're oftentimes the lowest that a a practitioner will receive. But all across the country, states were allowed to sort of nationalize their Medicaid rates by going up to the Medicare levels, which is an exciting prospect uh, given where the rates were before. This is a two-year experiment. Any sense of how uh, the adoption has gone and whether or not physicians across the country are adding more Medicaid patients to their roles, or has there been discussion about trying to do, as you're doing with Medicare, a five-year stabilization also to try to stabilize those rates so we can encourage uh, the great work that happens in so many private offices across the country? I don't have good numbers at my fingertips. I will tell you that the sense in the country right now amongst physicians is they're very concerned about Medicaid expansion only because they're worried about obviously the reimbursement part of it, but are they going to be able to handle the volume? And I say that only because that's what I keep hearing. What are we going to do with these people, these folks, these patients? And my response to this frequently is, you know, these are patients that are already in the healthcare delivery system. They're getting their care 
at the at the wrong place at the wrong time by the wrong person, and we need to flip that formula and make it work better. Having said that, I find amongst my physician colleagues a willingness to see Medicaid patients, a willingness to work with the system, and a willingness to work with their states to help make Medicare, Medicaid delivery in their states the best it can possibly be. It isn't easy sometimes. It's a fiscally troubling issue for many states, as you know. But our physician colleagues out there work at the state level with Medicaid programs and are trying to be very creative and helpful in getting access improved for these patients. Well, Dr. Hoven, uh, we appreciate that, and I want to appreciate the fact that you, uh, in your practice career, chose to specialize in HIV-AIDS care um, and uh, became and are just a tremendous advocate for the underserved and very well aware of the health disparities in our country. You know, we just had uh, Dr. Jack Geiger uh, on our show recently. I'm I'm sure you know his work launching the community health center movement back in the 1960s. And really, as he always reminds us, a movement that was created out of an understanding that health is much more about what happens outside of healthcare and much more about what we think of as those social determinants of health. And if we want to improve health in our communities and our patient populations, that we've got to be very focused on addressing those social determinants and and tackling still the huge and persistent health disparities in our country. I know that's something that the AMA is concerned with as well. Perhaps you can uh, share with us a little bit about the AMA's initiatives to address health disparities and how do you see that work reflected in training and practice and research across the country? Great question. And obviously the, the you know, the social determinants for us in this country are significant and I recently had the opportunity of listening to Sir Michael Marmot who uh, actually was the is the gentleman from the United Kingdom who really brought to the forefront this conversation. But the AMA actually has done several things and continues to do it over the over the last decade. One of the most important has probably been the AMA's minority affairs section uh, which serves as a grassroots forum, if you will, for increasing the voice of minority physicians in the AMA itself. This this is important because it's an important link to the minority patient population. So what it does is it brings to the AMA a very important perspective to our discussions around all the critical issues in healthcare delivery and population, you know, issues around disparity and professional concerns. So it provides us real life, real time information that enables us as an organization to be much more rea- appropriately reactive um, to the issues. Um, the, the Commission to End Health uh, Disparities, another entity, is co-chaired by the AMA and the National Medical Association. Again, recognizing that healthcare disparities exist due to multiple factors, including race and ethnicity, and this group works together to increase awareness amongst physicians. You know, the other thing we've been very active in is our Doctors Back to School program, and I'm not sure whether you're aware of it, but physicians and medical students uh, students across the country visit schools and community organizations to help young minority children realize that they can pursue a career in medicine. Mm And it's an exciting thing. The feedback is wonderful. This is not only African-Americans, but Hispanics, uh, American Indians. Um, and so we're trying to look and get the, the percentage of the physician population to represent 
does the people they serve. And so this is something we talk about and work about. We've been speaking today with Dr. Artis D. Hoven, president of the American Medical Association and the third woman to hold the position in the nation's oldest and largest physician organization, where she's been a member of the AMA Board of Trustees since 2005. You can learn more about her work and the work of the AMA by going to ama-assn.org. Dr. Hoven, thank you so much for joining us today on Conversations on Healthcare. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. At Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of FactCheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? Well, Senator Ted Cruz spent about 21 hours on the Senate floor railing against Obamacare. We here at Fact Check are still going through the pages and pages of the transcript, but we found several false and misleading claims so far. For instance, Cruz, the freshman senator from Texas, wrongly said that the spouses of 15,000 UPS employees will be, quote, left without health insurance and forced into an exchange with no employer subsidy. That's not true. UPS announced that it was dropping coverage for spouses only if they could get insurance with their own employer. A company memo said that since the Affordable Care Act required businesses to provide insurance, quote, we believe your spouse should be covered by their own employer. UPS estimated that of the 33,000 spouses it currently covers, 15,000 can get insurance through their own workplace. Cruz also said that the IRS Employees Union has been asked to be exempted from Obamacare. That's not the case either. The union, the National Treasury Employees Union, which represents agency and department employees, including workers at the IRS, opposes a Republican bill that would move federal employees out of their current health insurance program and into the exchanges set up by the Affordable Care Act. The union isn't opposed to Obamacare. Instead, it says this bill goes against the very intent of the law. The union says the law's goal was, quote, not to take coverage away from employees who already receive it through their employers. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. When Chef Carl Guggenmose grew up as a kid in post-war Germany, he lived on a diet of organic and locally grown foods. Now he's the dean of the culinary arts program at Johnson & Wales University in Rhode Island, and he realized that he has a responsibility to teach the next generation of chefs how vital natural and simple ingredients are, not just to creating good food, but to the health of the population as well. 
He watched the obesity epidemic take hold in this country and decided to use his platform to create a new approach to chef training. He teamed up with a professor of medicine at Tulane University Medical School in New Orleans, and together they created what they believe is the first course in culinary medicine in the United States, teaching chefs and fourth-year medical students how to understand the synergy between healthy eating, good food, and good health. Our graduates from Johnson Wales or any cooking school really have to take responsibility for the health and wellness of the people that they serve food to. So we created this program where our students are actually going to Tulane Medical School for an internship, and they work side by side with medical students and physicians working in the community, doing research, using an evidence-based approach to this whole idea of culinary medicine rather than anecdotal. So, in addition to learning knife skills, saute and poaching techniques, fourth-year medical students are given a lesson in food pairings, learning which foods are most poised to foster good health and to combat obesity in their future patients' lives. The medical students at the Center for Culinary Medicine, they have their own coursework that we help them develop and They identify ingredients as to their relationship to health. They then start basic introduction to cooking from knife skills to basically how to saute, how to poach, how to roast. And then they do recipe conversions and then they have to do research. And our students are there helping in their engaged working, writing articles, uh, being part of this whole uh, program, working side by side with the medical students and learning and exchanging information and and techniques from each other. The results and the responses are incredible. We're hoping to continue that. Dr. Harlan and I have been out speaking about this uh, as a joint, this collaboration between the chef and the physician. It's really unique and it's one of its kind and I think it's the first around the world and we're getting more and more traction about this. He strongly believes in the idea that chefs will be the pharmacists of the future. A dean of a reputable culinary program teaming up with a medical school to train future doctors armed with the skills and information to assist their patients in healthier eating, fostering the development of health-conscious chefs who are trained to feed the next generation well with foods that can prevent obesity. Now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center.